And I would invite you to turn in your uh, Bible, if you have a copy with you, to Nehemiah chapter 7. Let me put a little plug in here while you're turning there uh, to Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Uh, lately, we've given away a number of Bibles. We had to order more. And so a whole stack just came in this week. And so if you don't have a Bible to call your own, we have one to give you. And they're actually kind of nice. And so just take me up on that at the end of the service. We would love to give you a Bible for you to call your own. It is in the same uh, translation that I read from, so it'll be easy to follow along. Please just come up after the service. Don't be bashful. Love to put one of those in your hands. That's why we purchased them for you. As we're in Nehemiah chapter 7 and 8 today, we've been covering about two chapters every sermon. I just want to begin by asking you a question. What is the first thing that you do when you have an opportunity to relax? Like, let's say you've been running super hard. I know that wheat harvest is kind of, you know, you, many of you are on the back end of that now, and maybe now you can finally breathe just a little bit. What do you do? What happens when you finally have an opportunity to catch your breath and rest? Is there a certain movie you like to watch? Or maybe you run toward distraction or diversion or entertainment. Maybe you just like to sleep. Like that's your spiritual gift is just sleeping, you know? Amen. Are you tempted to let your guard down? Have you found that in times where you can finally, you finally feel like you're winning, you let your guard down and man, the devil just kind of comes in and starts tempting you. Maybe it looks like something like that. Uh, maybe you find it hard to relax. Uh, maybe you're like me and you get to the beach and it's about day three before you ever really get into let my guard down mode. You know, and then like vacation's halfway over by then. Um, I, I recently went to kids camp you all know, and I heard that, that Brother Bob prayed that I would come back in one piece, and so I appreciate that. Uh, by the way, Kids Camp is just a huge blessing. I mean, man, that, I, I think I want to do it again next year. I just want to go. Like, you know, whether or not we have enough help or not, I just want to go to Kids Camp. I learned so much. The kids learned so much. One of the things that I learned, did you know that in a standard 16-ounce cafeteria cup, that the average uh, fourth grader can fit 11 different samples from the drink machine in that thing. <laughs> I learned that. I learned that. I, I learned a lot about how long the average third grader can go without a shower. <laughs> learned that one. And how many sausage links seems like a good idea to put on your plate at breakfast. When I got home, I, I had an opportunity to relax, right? It had been, you know, a couple nights there, away, sleeping in a dorm room. Let me tell you, the first thing I did when I got home, I took a shower, I played with my boys. Later that night, I watched a movie or watched a show, maybe caught up on some Jeopardy with Whitney. I ate my popcorn and I drank my grape juice and I read a book and I went to bed. And that's what I love to do at the end of the day. I love to watch the same show, eat the same thing, and go to sleep. Today, in Nehemiah 7 and 8... We get to see what it's like for the people finally behind the walls of safety. Remember, up to this point, the people have returned to Jerusalem. They've been working hard. They've been pulling these 24-hour shifts. 
They've had a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other because they're trying to build the wall, but there's danger just on the other side. And then last week we saw that the walls were up and the walls were complete, but the gates weren't set yet. And so there's people standing guard at this gate, and it kind of seems like they're safe because the walls are up, but we don't have any gates. Today we see what happens when they're finally able to rest. And we're able to learn a couple of principles about what we should do when we finally enter the rest that God has promised. Let's remember a couple of things. The people have faced a ton of dangers. There are these two bad guys, Sanballat and Tobiah, and they've been like slandering them and threatening them with the armies that they have at their disposal. They've faced internal problems. They have seen that uh, when, when they got pinched and pressed and stretched, uh, things got tense, and the people within the walls, the people of God, were kind of willing to make life hard on one another from time to time. They faced organizational problems. They had to stand guard with swords, and they were even like laying bricks while they were standing guard. And then they faced these safety concerns all the time. They never knew when that army was going to try to come over the hill and breach one of those lightly guarded gates. They've lived in a situation of stress and of uncertainty. But we see today that the rest that God had promised was finally theirs and was finally there. If you'll read with me in Nehemiah chapter 7, we'll just read the first uh, five verses or so. The Bible says this, Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers and the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. And the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. And no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy or family tree. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, and I'll just save us a little bit of time because the rest of the chapter is the list of the families who had returned. And so here's the situation that the people find themselves in. They get back into the city, they build their walls, and now the gates are set. They're safe, right? They're kind of roughing it. I mean, they, they have no homes built. Maybe they're, kind of, maybe they're kind of crashing at the end of the day in these old, hollowed-out homes or something like that, but it's not a comfortable existence. And what they see now is that they're able to rest because they have been given the promised rest that God said they would get. Friends, what we are seeing now is we are seeing a picture of kind of a second exodus. You remember what happened in the first exodus? The people were enslaved. And they were enslaved to a cruel master. And God promised them that they would be delivered. 
that they would enter into the promised land and be safe and be at rest. The Bible says it was a land of rest. Here in Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, God is giving them kind of a second exodus. They were enslaved. They were enslaved to a cruel master. And now God has given them rest and return back in their city again. What good does this do for us today? How are we able to see it? Friends, remember what we have said about the Old Testament? The Old Testament is a book of shadows. In the Exodus, the people were enslaved to a bad master, a cruel master. But God promised that he would provide a way out. And they would be able to enter into a state of rest. In Ezra and Nehemiah, the people were enslaved to a cruel master. And God promised that he would provide a way for them to get out of their slavery and into a new place of rest. Friends, the story of Exodus and the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is the same story of the gospel. It's the same story about us. We, too, have been enslaved by a bad master, by a cruel master, sin. And God has promised that he will provide a way out of that slavery and into a situation of rest through Jesus Christ. And for everyone who hides themselves in Jesus, just like the people in Nehemiah hid themselves behind the walls that God allowed them to build, everyone who hides themselves in Jesus will be safe, not just from the armies for a little while until these walls break down, but we will be safe forever. If you are in Christ, this is how the Old Testament gives us pictures then of what is true of us now. We see here in chapter 8, though, how the preacher returns. The preacher returns. If chapter 7 was a story about promised rest, and if chapter 7 was a story about a second exodus, chapter 8 is a story about the preacher showing back up. We hear in chapter 8 about Ezra again. Remember in the book of Ezra just a few weeks ago how we were in Ezra chapter 7 before we even hear about Ezra? He doesn't show up until well over halfway through the book that's named after him. And this is just classic Ezra. Here we are, Nehemiah chapter 8, about halfway through, a little better than halfway through. And here Ezra is showing back up on the scene again. This should signal something to us. Because whenever Ezra shows up, it seems like whenever Ezra shows up, he brings the word of God with him. And whenever he brings the word of God with him, the change that happens among the people, uh, that needs to happen among the people, happens. Ezra is this representative of God's word. He's like God's messenger, but he doesn't bring a message from himself. He brings a message from God. If you'll read with me in uh, chapter 8, the first eight verses. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. You can see these people, they're finally back behind the safety of their walls. And what is the first thing that they want to do? They gather together. I'll be honest with you, I would be doing popcorn, Jeopardy, grape juice in bed if it were me. But these people, it says, they gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. This is a group of people who so want to see their God. 
So just like we sang at the beginning of this service, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. These are not people who are ready for a nap. They find Ezra and they say, hey, Ezra, you bring the Bible with you and be ready to preach because we want to see God today. This is the first thing on their minds. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. You know that our church, sometime back in the 1800s or early 1900s, it's actually in the minutes, the minute books of our church, somewhere way back then, where the church voted to put a clock on the back wall of the church. I don't know if y'all know this. You know the, the only person who can see a clock on the back wall is like the guy who's standing here. And, um, and they said they would also limit the sermon to 50 minutes, right? And thankfully, sometime that, that fell away, and I, I usually don't get close to 50 minutes. But the reality is these people were content to listen to the Word of God from early morning until midday, and apparently they weren't ready to let up. It says, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and women and all those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the law, to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. So now it's like they're done. They're done building the walls. And what do they do? Their carpenters get ready like, oh, the first thing we got to do is, is build this guy a pulpit because we need to hear the word of God. It just seems totally reasonable to them. They had built it for that purpose. It wasn't just something they cobbled together on a whim. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his right hand, Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadah, you're going to have to forgive me on that one, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. Look at verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Echub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah and the Levites, all these people, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. You can, you can have this picture of maybe Ezra standing up there preaching the word of God and, and these other men kind of making their way through the crowds and there are people who, with like, like a confused look on their face and some folks asking some questions and these men kind of filter out and say, oh, you've got a question, let me explain this to you, help you to understand the word of God. So it's Ezra preaching and the other people ministering the word of God because they all know that it's the understanding of the word of God that brings life change. Verse 8 finishes this way. And they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Friends, the people here had a hunger for the word. Verse 1 says, they told Ezra, bring the book of the law. Verse 2, the people gather as one man, the Bible says. 
Verse 3, the people listened to the word from early morning until midday. They were attentive, the Bible says. Verse 5, Ezra read the book and the people stood. There was like a reverence. They were like, a, I know we're here for hours on end, but the, the word of God is being read. I, got, I just got to stand, they, they think. Verse 6, and the people worshiped God. It says they lifted up their hands and they, they bowed their head toward the ground. Verse 7, Ezra had other men helping, uh, helping to help the people understand. There's this theme of understanding. The Bible must be not just read and, 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 and rehearsed, but understood. And verse 8 says, Ezra gave the sense. He explained it. He interpreted it. Friends, let me, if I have permission, just ask a few questions of us. Do we really believe that the Word of God can do the work of God? This is a question that our evangelicalism right now needs to go ahead and get an answer to. Because either we will believe that the Word of God has the power to build the church, or we will trust in gimmicks and manipulation and attractive strategies. Do we believe that the Word of God has the power to do the work of God? It's, it's easy to trust in emotionalism. But look here, the worship of the people, I mean, they're raising their hands. I mean, they're bowing their face to the ground, but it's arising out of the, the soil of the Word of God. It's easy to trust in emotionalism. It's easy to, to sing things that just have a goosebump factor instead of things that are true. Friends, let me point the application back at me. There is a way to preach in order to get amens, right? But that way of preaching may not be the way of explaining and of giving the sense of the Bible. It's also easy to trust in what's comfortable or tradition when the Word of God challenges, to do us, uh, challenges us to do something that we haven't done before, we can trust it. Here, in verse 6, we see a picture of genuine worship. And the beauty of it is that it arose from the hearing of the Word of God. The Word of God has the power to stir hearts. So that's what we put on display at every turn. We seek to preach the Word of God. We seek to sing the Word of God, to, to pray and to read the Word of God. And I hope that in our relationships, as you have friends, you need to get you some friends who speak the Word of God to you when you ask them a question, when you ask for advice. Do they give you the Word of God? In counseling, we seek to expose the Word of God. This is what expository preaching, you hear that big word, expository? It just means we are simply trying to expose what is here. Protects us, protects us from opinions, protects us from preferences and from traditions. We seek to expose what God has revealed. I've got a quote for you from Charles Spurgeon, and um, you may have heard a, a version of this. He's, he's been kind of uh, misquoted a few times, but here's the, the original quote, and it's beautiful. I'll read this to you. It says this, a great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt it is a very proper and right thing to do. Yet I always notice that when there, are, when there are most books of that kind, it is because the gospel itself is not being preached. 
Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts. And he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that it would be the best way of defending him. For he would take care of himself. And the best apology or defense for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Friends, I have no clever ways of explaining the gospel to you. I don't have a bag of tricks. All I have is the foolishness of this message that even though we were sinners and even though we were far from God, He loved us anyway and sent His Son to live the perfect life that we failed to live and to die the death that we deserve to die. And for anyone that that message seems good and you're willing to embrace that message, Jesus will call you His. Would you come to Him today? Would you run to Him today? Friends, I would leave you with this last question. How would you gauge your hunger for the Word of God. Sometimes it's difficult to know which statistics to trust and which ones not to trust, but I did hear of this report that was put out within the last couple of years about Bible reading. And I heard that typically a person who has one encounter with the Word of God per week is basically no different from a person who has zero encounters with the Word of God per week. There's just no change in their happiness. There's no change in their, uh, in their mental state. There's no change in their, uh, the health of their family or of their marriage. The person who has two encounters with the Word of God is basically the same, still a flat line. A person who has three encounters with the Word of God per week, who reads the Bible maybe three days a week on three separate days, there is a noticeable change. But on the fourth day of the week, I'm not saying that you should just go for four. I mean, I, I'm, I would encourage you to shoot for seven. But when you get to the fourth day, there is a radical, notable, empirical change in the health of marriages, in the health of mental health, in your state of everything. Everything completely changes. I would ask you, how would you gauge your hunger for the Word of God. I used to do a lot of running in high school. It was about the only thing I was built for. And so I would run. I ran cross country. And I would notice that the hardest part of running 10 miles was just getting out the door. You know? But I noticed, and it's about almost to the hundredth of a mile, when I get to 85 hundredths of a mile, when I get to between eight and nine-tenths of a mile, and the endorphins hit, and suddenly I am so glad that I'm running. Right? It starts to feel good, and I feel like I could run forever. Something about just getting out the door. I would encourage you, friends, if you get discouraged in your Bible reading time and you sit down and try to open up the Bible, and the first five minutes seems completely tough, friends, I would just suggest to you that's totally normal. And then you read for about five more minutes. And then you get to about the 15-minute mark and you see a, a nugget. The Lord gives you a gem and you write it down in your notebook. 
They're like, oh, I want more. And then 15 more minutes goes by. And you're like, I've been 30 minutes with the word and it's felt like it's gone by in the blink of an eye. And, and all you know is you just want more. And the next thing you know, you find yourself praying and wanting to commune with the Lord. I would encourage you, friends, gauge your hunger for the word of God. And even if you are not hungry, take the first bite. And I would suggest to you that you'll realize just how hungry you are. Here's the last point that I'll leave you with, beginning in verse 9. The people respond. Chapter 8, verses 9 through the end of the chapter, we see some very interesting things. I'll read to you a couple of verses, beginning in verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. Why would the preacher need to say that? He's been preaching the word of God to them. They've been standing there from early morning until midday. And all of a sudden, these guys come onto the scene, Ezra and Nehemiah. And they're like, hey folks, remember, don't mourn. Don't weep. There's nothing to cry about. The next sentence tells us why they had to say this. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went on their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. The people here have looked the Bible squarely in the face and what they saw there made them weep. I'm afraid that the reason that we have so little weeping in our churches is because we have so little explanation of the whole counsel of God's Word. When we really see what it says, there is a good and right despair that comes from an encounter with the Word of God. But here's the good news. The Bible doesn't stop with tears. The Bible says that yes, your condition before a holy God, your dirty, sinful, broken, wayward condition before a holy God, it should make you weep. But for God's sake, don't stop there. Because what the rest of the Bible says is that the work that Jesus has done gives us reason to dry our tears. There is no more reason to cry. Because every sin that should have brought us judgment and every sin that should have sent us far away from the presence of God has been completely taken care of at the cross of Jesus Christ. 
So dry your tears. It's so easy to short-circuit the gospel. It's so easy to say, hey, the gospel means you don't have to cry. The gospel is better than that, friends. The gospel says cry and let Jesus dry your tears at the cross. That's what the gospel says. See, let's, let's don't, let's don't short-circuit the gospel. Every sin we've committed is real, and it really separates us from God. But Jesus paid for them all. They weren't swept under the rug. They were atoned for. They weren't excused. They were forgiven. Secondly, we are not born children of God. That's the part that makes us cry. We're not born in His family. We're outside the gate. We're outside the walls. We're outside the family. We're not invited to the table. But we can be reborn, children of God, accepted, invited, adopted into His family through Christ. The gospel is not our sins don't matter. The gospel is our sins have been forgiven. This is the beauty of the gospel. It looks us straight in the face. It sees all of our brokenness. It sees all of our habits and all of our issues and all of our sins and all of our rebellion. And Jesus in the gospel says, I choose you anyway. And friends, I would suggest to you that this message and this God and this Savior is worth throwing yourself on. How should you respond to this picture we've seen? It's a picture of the second exodus, right? The people were enslaved to a bad master. They had no hope. God provided a way out, and he gave them rest. We're enslaved to a bad master, our sin. God has provided a way out, Jesus, at the cross. And the rest he gives, he gives when you turn to Jesus. Would you today meet me down here? to turn to Christ. I would love to show you how to do that. Let's pray together.